Chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. The word of our Lord from the epistle says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you look not for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. O God, whose blessed Son came into the world, that He might destroy the works of the devil and make us to be children of God and heirs of life eternal. Grant that having this hope, we may purify ourselves just as He is pure, so that when He comes again with power and great glory, we may be made like Him in His eternal and glorious kingdom, where He lives and reigns with You, O Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Units come with various parts. Whether you're talking about the units of a team, such as a football team, some did well yesterday on college football day, and uh, some did poorly Some today on uh, National uh, Football League football day will do well together and some will do poorly. Whether you're talking about a team or whether you're talking about a company, some companies do better than others. Some companies are larger. Some companies are smaller. But a company is a unit. But it's composed of many parts. Or whether you're talking about what Paul often refers to the church as. He uses the, the term body of Christ as a synonym for the church. And in his illustration of the body of Christ, he talks quite extensively about how that one body is brought together and composed of many parts. But units come with various parts and what is needed for those various parts to work together is unity having unity as a unit operating as it should we find a fulfillment of purpose we find the attainment of goals and we find also the strengthening and the building of value 
you know, a bike that is taken apart and you've got a tire over here and the tire's off the wheel, the wheel's over there and you've got a pedal back over here, there may be some value in those various parts that are scattered around through a garage. But once the bike is put together and is operating functionally, when it is working toward its purpose, when it is actually fulfilling the goal of bikeness, you find the value of the bike is exponentially higher. Because it is operating as it was intended to operate. And so unity actually builds purpose and accomplishes goals and it fulfills values. In the scriptures of the New Testament, we have um, a variety of metaphors that are used to describe the church. A variety of metaphors used to help illustrate the early church's understanding of itself. One, as I mentioned, was Paul's use of the, the phrase, the body of Christ. But another is the, this idea of being the family of God. Paul, in his letters, particularly here in the book of Philippians, uses very intimate language when he is writing to people. He speaks and refers to them as brethren. Some of your modern translations would say brothers or some even brothers and sisters. But it's the idea of being siblings together. Being part of the, the same family together. And he uses that language of family, not just in speaking of the church, but also in speaking of God. He refers to him as Jesus taught his disciples to pray to him, Father. Which again invokes that, that conception of a family and the structuring of a family. Paul understands the church scattered throughout the nations and, and scattered throughout geography, uh, geography of the ancient world. He understands that church to be the family of God. And on a on a, a local level, they are also functioning as the family of God. Paul has great affection for the Philippians. He writes to them with passion. He writes to them with zeal and excitement. But he writes to them also with, with sympathy and with, um, with, with great love and affection. You can sense his, you can sense his love for them. In the way he writes. You can almost hear his voice in the tone that he uses throughout this letter. He's writing to people he really cares about. He's writing to people that he's got an awful lot invested in. But he's writing to people that he also wants to see succeed. He wants to see God's best being realized in their lives as families and as individuals, but also he wants to see God's best for them being realized in their life as a family of God in the church. And so he writes with great affection for these are people that he loves. And he wants to see in their diversity as individual members and as people who are being pulled together. It's interesting that the, the, uh, the, the term church in the New Testament, ecclesia, is, is the term being called out. And it kind of mirrors the, uh, 
the, the, the term that referred to the, the, the cell groups that would meet throughout the Roman world uh, before Jesus, the synagogues. The gathered together, or the gathering together. And, and that very image of being called out or of being gathered together helps you to recognize that there is great diversity. These people aren't all related to each other. These people don't all work together. They don't all have the same hobbies. They are a variety of sorts. And they are being brought together so that they might attain unity even in the midst of their diversity. You know, even in a family, regardless of how large or small it is, not all of the people are the same. If you've had kids and you've had to discipline those kids, you know that not all people are the same. Some things work well, some things work poorly. And then you get to a second child and wait a minute, the thing that worked well isn't working at all. What do I do? We are all different. I I tell you all the time, you're all weird. Because we're all weird. Every person is weird. We're not alike. We might might have some things in common. You may see someone that you feel like you recognize them, but you've never met them before, and they've just got that familiar face. But every person is unique. Every person, though made in God's image, is uniquely crafted in that image. And so, in a family, you necessarily have diversity. You've got different personalities. You've got different life experiences. Some of the things that I went through growing up are different than the things that Lindsay went through growing up. You know, Imogene's lived in two different states, and so has Aiden, but Aiden wasn't even a year old when he was living in the first of those states. Emory and then beyond, they've all lived in the same exact house for all of their lives. Imogene has moved from four different places. Aiden only three. They're pretty close to the same age. And so we're all different. We all have different life experiences. We all have different personalities, different interests, different likes. Some of us love sports. Some of us hate sports. Some of us don't mind sports. We'll watch it if it's on. Some of us love football, but we hate professional football because that's where all the money is, and it's just not the same as pure college football. But there's an awful lot of money in college football. So we've all got our different things, those different things that we enjoy, those different things that drive us. Some of us drive to work for an hour in the mornings. Some of us get up and start working at our home computer. Some of us sit back and relax and live the life of ease of being retired, right? So we're all very, very different, but we've all been called together as one family to find unity in that diversity. Why is unity important? Why does it even matter? Why is this something that Paul is concerned with? Why does he call the Philippian believers to have the same mind, to, have, to share the same love, to, to live in one accord? Why does it even matter whether or not we have unity? Well, for a couple of things. Number one, for the the health of the family itself. 
For the sake of the family, there needs to be unity. Because a family is intended to be one. It is intended to work together. It is intended to be functional. You know, we've seen dysfunctional families. And we always know there is something fundamentally wrong here. It's not just that we don't like them. It's not just that they're weirder than we are. It's not just that they can't seem to put life together or always seem to be stomping out problems. It's there's something fundamentally wrong. They are dysfunctional because there is a lack of cohesion and a lack of unity. And so for the sake of the family itself, we need unity and unity is so important. But not only that, but for the sake of its members, we need unity. Unity is important to the family because the members of a family need the sort of dependability and the sort of faithfulness, the sort of structure that is brought by, by, by being cared for in the context of a family that is functioning as it ought. To find joy being fulfilled, the members of a family need unity. Joy is that for which we've been made. You remember I quoted St. Augustine just a couple of weeks ago. Oh God, you have created us for yourself. And our hearts remain restless until they rest in you. Our lives are hungering and are longing for rest. Not just relaxation and, and a distance from our labors, but restfulness, joy, peace. It is our heart's longing. It is a desire that is deep, deep within us like a hunger, like a nagging hunger. We long for joy. And to find joy, we don't just need others to make us happy. We need to find ourselves in the context of relationships that are building value and relationships that are helping us to learn to love. And unity is therefore of the utmost importance. Paul, in his writing to the Philippians, he speaks of the joy that he has in them. And he speaks also of the value that he has invested in them. And how his fulfillment as a minister of the gospel is largely invested in them and in their strength. He doesn't want to see his labors being in vain, ultimately. He wants to see unity in this family to whom he's writing. Unity is quite important because the family needs unity and those who are part of the family need unity. How is unity attained? Well, Paul gives us some hints he begins the passage that we've read together this morning. If there is any consolation in Christ. And notice he begins kind of uh, appealing to the, to the no-duh factor. 
Of course there's consolation in Christ. If there's any comfort in love, well, who likes to be loved? Everyone. We find comfort in love. If any fellowship of the Spirit, if you guys share the, 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 the presence of the Spirit with one another, if there's any affection or mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He talks here about the heart and mind, the relationship of, of, of the heart and mind in the development of unity within a family, particularly within the family of God. There must be a single focus, a, 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 a set of shared principles if there is to be unity in a family. The family has to be on the same page, so to speak. They have to be headed in the same direction and they have to share the same values in order to find full unity together. Most of you have heard that Blake is getting married. He and Angela, I've been able to meet with them and uh, do some, some premarital counseling. And one of the things that I gave to them was, uh, was not a gift, but an assignment. I like giving assignments. I told them, you, you guys are going to be uh, away quite a bit as, as you uh, prepare for, for this wedding. And I want to give you some work. Uh, to be able to, uh, to to knock out. And the assignment that I gave to them, well, I gave them a number of assignments, <laughs> to be honest with you. But one of the assignments that I gave to them was for them to begin brainstorming together, to take out a notebook and start jotting down their ideas to, together so that they can start crafting a purpose statement as a family. I said, in most people's language, you get married and then sometime later you start a family. That means you're having kids. But I told him, no, you guys are doing what the scriptures have said. A man is leaving his father and mother and is cleaving to his wife and they are becoming one flesh. You are creating a family by marrying one another. And that family that hopefully one day you will raise kids in, but even if not, that family has to have a singularity of purpose and focus. And so they're working on what is our purpose statement as a family? What is going to be the principle that guides us? Not just some things that we like, but what are we going to be about as a family? Getting one mind together. You know, there's a world of difference between walking with someone and walking beside someone. You can be walking down the sidewalk uh, in downtown Atlanta and not be walking with anyone, though there are dozens of people bumping into you and rushing past you. This unity, this singleness of mind, or this singleness of love that Paul is speaking about is pictured for us in, in the idea of walking with someone. We are headed in the same direction. We are keeping a similar pace. 
I often, uh, when driving down the road, I'll, you'll notice couples that, uh, uh, that are on a walk together. And I'm always amused when one, when one person is up ahead of the other person. And you can just, you know, some people you can look at them and you can tell that they're together. You know they're together. You know, you know, you see, whether you've never met David and Christy or, or not, if you see the two of them, you'd probably put them together. They're probably married together. But you're driving down the road, and, uh, or I'm driving down the road, and, and, and I'll, see, uh, I'll see a couple walking kind of together, but one's up ahead of the other one, and you can tell they're kind of, you know, trying to slow down just a little bit so the other one can catch up. And I'm always, I always amuse myself. Number one, I'm driving and they're walking. Lucky me. But, uh, uh, but, but the other thing that amuses me is I think, how boring. You're on a walk with someone and you're not near each other. You can't talk. When Lindsay and the kids and I go on a walk and she's normally up ahead of me and I'm in the back and she's talking and I'm, you know, I'm pulling something or I've got kids talking beside me and I'm hollering the whole time I can't hear you hang on a second and so I make the kids get over in the grass and just tell them start running and I try to catch up with her and so we can walk beside one another not just so that we're beside one another but so we can walk with one another But that's what Paul is envisioning when he's talking about having a, a, a singularity of mind or heart. He's talking about being together, being on the same page, headed in the same direction, and sharing the same values. You know, we as a congregation have three values that are of the utmost importance to us. You see them on our website, on our Facebook page, you see them... Um, uh, uh, all, all over the place. One you see every week when you come in, personal mission. But that value of personal mission comes out of the value of transformational discipleship. We think people ought to be on mission in the world, their world and the world at large, in a personal and tangible and measurable way because God is transforming us as disciples. He is creating us recreating us to be what he longs for us to be. And so personal mission as a value comes in our congregation out of the value of transformational discipleship. And that value of transformational discipleship comes out of the context of our first value, which is relational community. We want to be people who don't just shake hands on Sunday mornings. We want to be people who live in fellowship with one another. Who relate to one another. Who are connected to one another. Who really care about each other. Who will ask each other, hey, you asked me to be praying about such and such. I have been. How's that going? And in the sharing of values. In the sharing of focus. Principles. We are able to attain unity to be strengthened with one another Paul says here that we are enabled to share the mind of Christ to think as Christ thought to view the world as Christ viewed the world and notice how he viewed 
the world. He viewed the world so much that he was willing to lay aside his divine rights of claim. He was willing to make of himself no reputation, to become a servant to the human race, to come in the form of a servant, a servant in the likeness of men. And not only that, he was found to, to, to be just like us, to look just like us. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. And Paul says, not even that, just the, not just death, but even death on a cross as a, a, a criminal, an outsider, a reject in the Roman world. But it's this one whose mind we are called to share, who, is, who has been given the name that is above every name, who has been highly exalted, who's been lifted up, who is the, the one before whose name every knee will bow, Paul says, whether in heaven or on earth or even those under the earth, every knee will ultimately bow before this name and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. And Paul wants us to look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. To care about one another so much that we're not worried about what does this, how does this help me? What have they done for me? How are they going to return the favor? Man, I do that sort of thing for them all the time and I never get anything out of it. He says, look to the interests of others. Our English translations try to soften it and say, look not just for your own interests, but also the interests of others. You know, if you can kind of fit those in there, that'd be nice. That's not what the text actually says. It says, look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. If we are to attain unity, we ought to be concerned also with maintaining it. How is it maintained? It's maintained through action and through practice. We maintain unity within a family and within especially the family of God by remembering and by rehearsing, by exercising that unity, by practicing it. How does a team become better? Practice. I remember um, as a kid always hearing uh, Mr. Jess Rokas. He was my dad's boss, and he's a friend to many of you guys. Um, he, uh, he used to say, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. And his point was, you practice for excellence. You don't just go through the motions. You practice every time like this is the time that matters. This is the time that counts. We maintain unity as families and as the family of God by remembering and rehearsing, by exercising that unity, by going back over those values, the principles that guide us, the focus for our lives. 
if you have a purpose statement as a family, it would do yourself, you would do yourself well, it would do your family well to actually look at it and think about it, to recall it to mind periodically. But not just remembering the unity we have together. That's not the only thing that helps us maintain it. But actually practicing it. Living it out. Love in action. In our relationships. In our interactions with one another. We need to practice unity. We need to live out in action the love that we have for one another. So that we can have unity in the practice of our daily living. As we bear with one, another, with one another. As we defer to one another. The unity that God has created us to live in can be maintained and strengthened. As a congregation, we need one another. We need the fellowship that we have together. We need one another not just to get by. We need one another in order to be able to, to, to practice in a practical way love and caring for others. Most of you aren't too bad of people. It's a whole lot easier to love someone that's not, not too bad of a chap. It's a whole lot easier to love that, that type of person than someone who's perhaps worse off. And it's in the context of the family of God that we are given the opportunity to practice loving others. To practice what it is to bear with one another. To forgive one another. There is no global cosmic unity of ecumenism without there being local unity in the body of Christ. There are a lot of people that talk an awful lot about, man, if the churches just get together and work together and function together, oh, think of all the good we could do. Yeah, but you, you cannot and never will get toward that until there is genuine love and affection and caring and deferring and bearing and forgiving in a local body. We can't speak about what the, wor- what the world, how the world could benefit how those suffering in Iraq and those Christians who are being martyred in Syria and, and the church being persecuted around the world and what's the church to do about it if folks can't even love one another in a local congregation. We are called together in love to be the family of God and to live in this context. As one.
And we each have a part to play in building and strengthening that unity. We each are called to care about one another. I mentioned it last week. I don't mention it all the time, but we've got these uh, responses that are on the backs of your communication card that uh, we'll be collecting here in just a few moments. But um, but they're also on the back of your bulletins. If you'll notice on the back of your bulletin, I want you to take home your bulletins and so you can remember, oh, that's what I said I was going to do. I said I was going to do this or pray that or do this. You know, as we consider how am I going to pray and what am I going to do and what am I going to become as a response to this time of worship together. One of the things that, uh, that I want to encourage you to, to consider doing is consider calling on those who aren't here this morning. Not to shame them or beat them up or embarrass them or anything like that. Just to let them know, hey man, I love you and just want to let you know I miss you. I hope everything's okay. Is there any way I can be praying for you? I promise you this, that'll, that'll say a whole lot more about this church if you do that than if I do that. If folks want, to, want, want the pastor to reach out to them, yeah. But when someone who's got no, no uh, responsibility to call them, picks up the phone to call or shoots a text or an email, that says an awful lot. As we prepare to sing the last song, let's, uh, let's bow our heads and spend a, a couple of moments in reflective prayer as we try to respond to God. We want to respond to Him appropriately and we want to respond to Him as He would have us respond to Him. But think about how to practically, in a very real and tangible way, to help develop and nurture unity. Let's pray.